The title of today's message is Divine Protection. You know, in multiple surveys that have been done, uh, have been taken, in which people were asked what they want most out of life. What is it that they want most in life? Consistently, the number one answer, it's probably going to surprise all of you, the number one answer was happiness. Now, that's, that's not surprising at all. People want to be happy. The second most common answer that people say that they want in life is security. So these are really fundamental human desires that are shared kind of across the board. The desire for happiness and a desire for security. And the Bible has a lot to say on both of these topics. Um, and the Bible says basically that it is good and it is normal to have desires for happiness and desires for security. But it matters very much how you go about trying to attain those things. How do you go about trying to attain uh, Happiness. How do you go about trying to attain security? And what's interesting is this, that the Bible says, the Bible teaches that true happiness and true security are found in ways that most people, that are, that are different than the way that most people in the world go about seeking those things. The Bible teaches that true happiness and true security are found in surrendering your life to the will of God. You know, that true happiness is found in laying down your life and surrendering it to the will of God. True security is found in placing your life in God's hands, walking in his ways, making him Lord of your life. And this is exactly what we see illustrated for us here in the book of 1 Samuel. David and Saul, they provide for us a contrast of two different ways that we can approach life. Really, they do. Two different ways that we can approach life. King Saul, in him we see the picture of a man who is trying, he's striving as hard as he can to attain happiness and security in life. But he's doing it on his own apart from God. Yet, uh, despite Saul's greatest efforts, Saul has neither of these things. Saul has neither happiness nor security. He's completely depressed. He, he's so jealous of other people that it makes him sick. And his life is just spiraling out of control. He's losing everything. David, on the other hand, in him we see a man who is fully availed to God. He wants to live a life of bold trust and great faith in a big God, and he wants to walk with God by faith and be used by God in his life. And in this section we're looking at today, we're going to see how David actually has the very things that Saul so badly desires, that Saul is striving after. David has them. He has happiness. He has security. But the thing is that those things are not found in the way that Saul would have ever thought or imagined. They aren't found in the way that Saul's trying to attain them, and they, they aren't found in a way that, that most people would expect in this world. See, true happiness and real security are found in making God Lord of your life and walking in his ways and putting your life in his hands. As a result, David, who does that, he has security in the midst of danger. He has security in the midst of difficulty and instability. He has a deep-seated sense of security. David also has joy in the midst of even the most distressing circumstances. That's what we'll see. You know, recently in our study, we have seen that a lot of bad things have been happening to David. After David defeated Goliath, he became an overnight sensation, a national hero immediately. People loved him. They were inspired by his faith in God. They were inspired by his courage to trust God and take bold steps of faith. But the more popular David became, the more jealous Saul became of all the attention that David was getting, which he was not. 
And Saul let these feelings of jealousy take root in his heart, and they stewed and they brewed until they became, uh, the jealousy turned into resentment, and the resentment distilled into hate. And in his hatred of David, Saul determined that he was going to do whatever it took to get rid of David, even if it meant killing him. At first, Saul tried to do it in underhanded ways. He would try to kind of manipulate situations. He would try to trip David up and discredit him. He would put him in harm's way, hoping that David would fall. But when that didn't work out, Saul took a more direct approach, and he ordered his soldiers, including his son Jonathan, to murder David. Jonathan, though, refused to do that. He, he took a stand against his father. This is what we looked at last week. He refused to do what Saul had ordered him to do. And not only that, but Jonathan confronted his father, Saul, and he told him, Saul, father, what you're doing is wrong. It's downright sinful. This hatred, these feelings that you have towards David, it's wrong, it's sinful, and you need to repent of it. And to everyone's great surprise, that's exactly what Saul did. We didn't really expect him to, but Saul did. Saul repented. He apologized to David. He seemed to have had a change of heart. And that was a beautiful thing. It was a great thing. But unfortunately, it was short-lived because after a while, Saul's heart once again became overcome with resentment towards David because of his own insecurity. And he threw out that whole change of heart type of thing and he threw it all out the window and he went back to his original plan of trying to kill David. We left off in chapter 19, seeing Saul once again trying to kill David with a spear and David fleeing the palace and running for his life. For David, this was the beginning of what would be over a decade on the lamb, so to say, running from David, living in caves and fields, living as a fugitive, as Saul would hunt him with all the force of the whole army of Israel. And surely David must have wondered many times over these years, as we sometimes do, right? God, where are you in all of this? Why, God? What's going on? Why are you letting this happen to me? Now, we've talked about over the last several weeks that God allowed these things to happen to David because it was through these experiences, through these difficulties, that God was teaching David important lessons. And, and he was forming David's character and making him into a man of God. But what I want you to see today is the other side of that coin. God wasn't just allowing things to happen to David, but we see here today that God was also taking an active role in protecting David. See, there were certain things which God would not allow to happen to David. There was a limit, and God would intervene and protect David. In other words, whether it was in allowing things to happen or whether it was in stopping things from happening, God was in control the whole time. That's the reason why David, even though he's in the midst of dangerous and difficult circumstances, he can have this deep-seated, fundamental, foundational uh, sense of security. He knows that his life is in God's hands and that God loves him. So let's check out what happened and how God protected David. So 1 Samuel, we're going to pick it up in, uh, at the end of verse 10 and into verse 11. So Saul sought to pin David to the wall with a spear, and David slipped away from Saul's presence, and he drove the spear into the wall. So David fled and escaped that night, and Saul also sent messengers to David's house to watch him and kill him in the morning. You know, David runs away from the palace where Saul has just tried to kill him again, and where's he going to go? Well, he goes home. 
You see, this isn't the first time that Saul's tried to kill him. And in previous times when Saul tried to murder him, David had just kind of removed himself from the situation. He had hid out for a while, gone home, and then Saul would cool off, and then David could return. But this time, Saul isn't going to cool off, right? Saul, Saul isn't going to stop with a spear. He's not going to stop until David's dead. And Saul sends these messengers to David's house to wait for him and kill him. So these messengers, right, they're not like, uh, you know, they're not bringing him a candy gram. They're not dropping off the mail, right? These messengers are assassins. They're hitmen, right? And, and David is just one step ahead of these hitmen who are coming to kill him. And, and he runs into his house, and we're going to see he pours out his heart to his wife, Michael, who is also the daughter of Saul, by the way. He pours out his heart. Saul's your father. He's trying to kill me again. He's doing this. For Michael, think about this. This is a conflict. King Saul is her father, and David is her husband, and there's this conflict between these two men. Maybe some of you can relate to this, right? You've been in Michael's shoes before, caught in the middle of a conflict between your spouse and your parents. That's a tough place to be in. Let's check out what Michael does. Uh, from the end of verse 11. Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, if you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. Michael says, look, David, I know my father, and my guess is he, he's not going to give up. He's probably even going to send some men here to kill you tonight. In fact, they may already be on the way. You need to get out of here right now. So Michael helps David escape through the window, and David runs away. You know, Michael here, she's faced with a conflict of loyalties. It's a really tough position she's in. She's in the middle of a conflict between her spouse, her husband, and her parents. And the question is, where is her loyalty going to lie? Will her loyalty lie with her husband, or will she take the side of her father in this thing? Because she can't just be neutral, at least not in this situation. She, if she helps the one, she's hurting the other. She has to take a side. Who is she going to side with? Well, what we see is that Michael makes the right choice and stands by her husband. You know, one of the instructions, one of the first instructions that the Bible gives about marriage, I mean, really at the beginning of the Bible, is that when two people get married, it says the two become one flesh. They're no longer two. Jesus said this. He said they're no longer two, but they become one flesh. So what that means is that in marriage, uh, two people are forming a new unit, and that's why it says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What that means is that when a couple is wed together, when they're joined in holy matrimony, there are two things going on identity-wise. Two things that are going on identity-wise when a couple's joined in holy matrimony. First of all, they are gaining autonomy. They're gaining autonomy from their previous family ties, their previous family unit and they're forming a new family unit so first of all you gain autonomy from your previous family ties and secondly you are giving up your autonomy as individuals because the two become one so our society here in America especially where we live in Colorado in the western United States you know it, the the culture is what I like to call rugged individualism and that means this, that we basically, we love the idea of autonomy from everything and everybody and everything. Like, we love autonomy. And we're not so fond of the idea of, 
you know, belonging to something or, or having a deep community or, or really knitting ourselves to something. You know, we tend to, here in this part of the country, we tend to embrace the idea, the first one I mentioned, number one there, gaining autonomy, we say, yeah, that's awesome, that's right. But the idea of giving up autonomy, well, that's not quite as exciting to a lot of us. Uh, but it's very important that we see this is part of the biblical blueprint for marriage. We, we call it, you know, in, in layman's terms, we call it leaving and cleaving, right? You leave in the one, you're cleaving to the other. You, you leave your present or your, your previous family attachments. You cut the cord, guys. You stop being a mama's boy or a daddy's girl. And you cleave to your spouse. You form a new unit in which your attachments, your primary loyalties are to each other above anybody else, and that means that you don't allow anything or anyone to form a wedge between you. If your mom starts telling you what a loser your spouse is, even if she's right, you can't let that go on, right? You're gonna be like, mom, sorry, we're not gonna talk about this, right? Because you cannot let that come between you and your spouse. You can't let, if you have friends who are coming between you, you choose your spouse over the friends. See, this is what we're talking about, your primary loyalty. You become fiercely protective of that bond and you cleave to each other. You become one. If someone puts you in a place of saying, well, you either choose between your spouse or you choose between me, it's a no-brainer, right? It should be clear, you choose your spouse. You don't let anything or anyone become a wedge between you. You choose your spouse above all others. And the two of you become one. And what that means is that you give up your autonomy as individuals. Your identity changes from being disconnected individuals to being one unit in this, in this new family unit. You and your spouse form a new identity. You know, doing, uh, doing marriage counseling, uh, sometimes, uh, several times actually, I've heard, you know, have... Uh, two spouses there, a man and a woman, and, and one of them, whether it's the man or the woman, I've had it come from both, they will say something along the lines of, well, you know what, I think we need to just take some time, I need to take some time to discover myself. I need to figure out who I am apart from them, and, and then maybe once I've done that, then we can come back together and everything will be better. And I have to say, I, I disagree with that completely. Um, you know, I don't think that's biblical. What, what the Bible would say is that if you are married, your identity is intimately knit to and tied to that of your spouse. That's what you did by getting married. You don't need to explore who you are apart from your spouse. You need to explore and discover who you are together in the Lord. What is your identity together in the Lord? You know, Michael is faced with a difficult situation, a situation that is very common for married couples to find themselves in, especially early in marriage, and that is a conflict between her spouse and her parents. Will she stand by her husband or will she side with her father? Michael does the right thing here. She's a good example in this way. She supports her husband. But now here is David and Think about David. He's just escaped through the window. He's running off maybe into a forest, maybe into a wilderness. He's not, in a, he's not in a safe place. He's not safe in the palace. He's not even safe in his own home anymore. And so he escapes through a window and he runs away. David probably doesn't even know at this point where he's going to go. He's just running for his life, trying to get away. And his mind, you can imagine, is probably racing with all kinds of thoughts. He's got adrenaline pumping, and he's wondering, where do I go? What do I do? Well, do you know what David did? Do you know what he's going to do? He sings a song. 
It's kind of a weird thing to do, right? But David, that's what he did. He sang a song. It's actually a glorious thing. It's a beautiful thing. Here's what David did in this time of distress, his mind racing, his heart pumping, adrenaline flowing. He gets away from his house and he takes a minute and he sings a song to the Lord. Turn with me to Psalm 59. Psalm 59. And read the title of this psalm. You see what I'm talking about. It says this, to the chief musician set to do not destroy a miktam of David when Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him. See, this is the same time. David just escaped his house. He's running away. And what does he do? He, he takes a minute and he sings a song. He writes a song. He writes a poem. In a time of distress, in a time of despair, David could sing to the Lord, and I hope that you can too. I hope that you can settle your heart and center your mind by pouring out your heart to the Lord in song or in prayer or in some other form of expression in the darkest times, in the deepest valleys. Check out what David says in this prayer. First of all, he starts out by explaining by, by taking his situation to the Lord. Verse 1 says, Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Defend me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity and save me from bloodthirsty men. He's crying out to God for help. Next thing David does is he, he describes his attackers. He says, Look, they, wait in, they lie in wait for my life. The mighty gather against me. He says down in verse 6, at evening they return, they growl like a dog. In verse 7, they belch with their mouth, swords are in their lips. And then after describing his attackers, he announces his innocence. He, he pleads his case before God. He says in verse 3, not for my transgression nor for my sin, O Lord. They run and prepare themselves through no fault of mine. And lastly, what David does in this song that he sings, in this psalm, in this prayer, he expresses his trust in God. Check out verse, verse 8, the first part. He says, but you, O Lord, will laugh at them. He says, I know that everything is against me. All the circumstances are against me. These people are against me. Everything's against me. But Lord, I know that in the end, you will have the last laugh. I trust in that. I believe it. I know it. He says in verse 9, I will wait for you, O you, his strength. For God is my defense. My God of mercy shall come to meet me. Do you see the confidence that David has here? Do you see the confidence that David has? And do you see the joy that David has? David has this joyful confidence in the Lord. And check out how this psalm ends. It ends in this just triumphant crescendo, right? This crescendo of confidence in God and joy in God. Verse 16, I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning for you have been my defense and refuge in the day of my trouble. To you, O my strength, I will sing praises for God is my defense, my God of mercy. I remember where this is coming from. Where, who is this guy who's saying these things? What's going on in his life? This guy just escaped an assassination attempt by jumping out of a window, right? This is a man for whom everything in his life is crumbling. It's falling apart. His whole life is falling apart around him, and yet he turns to God, and he trusts in God, and he sings to God, and he praises God, even at a time like this. This is what it looks like to be a man or a woman after God's own heart. So here's David. He's on the run. Where's he going? Well, we'll see that in just a minute. But first, check out what's happening back at his house. We'll continue from verse 13. 
Michael took an image and laid it in the bed, put a cover of goat's hair for his head, and covered it with clothes. So when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, oh, he's sick. So Saul sent the messengers back to David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers had come in, there was the image in the bed with a cover of goat's hair for his head. Then Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me like this and sent my enemy away so that he escaped? And Michael answered Saul, he said to me, let me go, why should I kill you? Michael made it look like David was sick in bed. She kind of pulled like a Ferris Bueller type thing, you know, like the kind of thing that you do when you're in middle school and you want to sneak out of your basement. Or maybe that was just me. But, uh, but when the assassins come to Saul, you know, they ask, where's, where, or yeah, the assassins come from Saul to get David. They ask, so where's David? You know, they knock on the door. Is David here? Oh, yeah, well, he's here, but he's sick in bed, don't you see? And she, you know, kind of lets him peek in and there's, you know, this lumpy thing in the bed. And, oh, yeah, okay, well, oh. And they say, well, um, all right, I guess we'll just come back when he's feeling a little better, you know? <laughs> kind of them, I guess. So they go back and they say to Saul, and they say, uh, so Saul, yeah, so we went to David's house, like he told us to, but man, you wouldn't believe it, he's really sick. I mean, he can't even get out of bed. And Saul's like, what kind of assassins are you? Since when do we care if somebody has a cold that we're not going to kill him? He's going to die anyway. Come on, just go kill him. And he says, I don't care if he's sick. We're trying to kill the man. Bring him here. I don't care if you need to get a stretcher. Get an ambulance. I don't care. Bring his whole bed here. I'm going to kill him myself. I can't trust you guys to do anything right. So they go back and they, they burst their way and they said, oh, sorry. Well, we don't care if he's sick. We're, we're coming to get him anyway. So Michael, you know, has to let him in. They're forcing their way in. And they, they pull back the covers, uh, covering up this lumpy stuff, right? And, and it, oh, it's, David's not even there. It's just a, you know, it's just this image, right, which is covered with all this goat's hair. Now, this word image, this is the word teraphim, which is translated elsewhere as a household idol. So when you're talking about an image, this isn't like a, a picture or something. This is really a, a household idol. What this would be is like a statue, maybe a bust, you know, but it would be a statue in the image of a pagan deity, and people would pray to it, they would sacrifice to it, they would uh, worship it. Uh, this is really just a pagan idol. So the question is, what is Michael, David's wife, doing with an idol in her house? You know, from the few times that we see Michael mentioned in First and Second Samuel, it's pretty easy to gather that Michael doesn't have the same heart for God that David has. Later on in 2 Samuel, Michael will mock David for his enthusiasm for the Lord. When David dances before the Lord and worships, Michael will tell him, why do you do that? You look like a fool. You're making a fool out of yourself. And David will reply, his reply is, I will not curb my enthusiasm for the Lord. I'm not going to be ashamed to dance. I'm not going to be ashamed to worship. And you know what? I will become even more undignified than this. You know, the other thing that we see about Michael here is that she lies. And I, and I think these are unnecessary lies. You know, first she lies to the assassins to cover up for, for David. But then when her father asks her what happens, instead of standing up to her father like her brother Jonathan had done and said, Dad, what you're doing's wrong. You can't do this. Instead, she says, oh, well, I did it. I didn't have a choice. David basically threatened to kill me, put a knife to my throat if I wouldn't let him go. So I didn't have a choice. Well, that's not what happened at all. But, but she lies. You know, God used Michael to protect David. And that's encouraging for us because it reminds us that God uses imperfect people. He uses people who don't have it all together yet. 
But none of us should uh, seek to be like Michael and, and be that kind of person, aspire to be like her. Let's continue on from verse 18. So David fled and escaped and went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed in Naoth. After singing to the Lord and strengthening himself in the Lord, David says, I know where I need to go. I need to go find the prophet Samuel. That's where I need to be. I need to be with a man of God at a time like this. I need somebody who will pray for me and, and be there for me and talk to me and help me to think biblically about this whole situation that I'm in. I need a man of God. So David goes to Ramah and he finds Samuel and he tells him everything. He pours out his heart to Samuel. He says, Samuel, you wouldn't believe what's been going on. I mean, Saul's been trying to kill me. He's throwing spears at me, man. And, and then he apologized and he said everything was cool again and I believed him, but then he did it again. And you know what? Then he sent assassins to my house to murder me. What's going on, Samuel? Samuel, you anointed me to be king of Israel. Why is all of this happening? What is God doing? What's going on? In a difficult and confusing situation, David did a wise thing, and you will do a wise thing also by spending time with godly people at times like this. In verse 18, the end, it says that Samuel took David and they went and stayed at Nioth. Samuel says, David, we've got to get you someplace safe, and I know just the place. Nioth was a place where Samuel the prophet uh, led a school of prophets. Basically, this was kind of like a, a ministry training school, a discipleship thing, a Bible college, you might say, where Samuel would take these guys, these young people who felt called to ministry, and, uh, and they would live together in this community, and Samuel would disciple them, and he would help them to grow in their calling and in their ministry. So Samuel takes David to Nioth, to the school of the prophets. Not only is this a place where David will be safe, but I want you to see this is a community of people who are seeking the Lord. Instead of, in other words, in our, our common vernacular, we would put it this way. Instead of taking David to a bar, Samuel takes David to a prayer meeting, right? That's a good thing. So verse 19. Now it was told Saul, saying, Take note, David is at Naoth, in Ramah. So Saul sent messengers to take David. Saul gets the intel uh, on his uh, whatever his device or whatever that David's hanging out in Nioth. So he sends his assassins to get him. I mean surely this will be an easy thing. They're just going to go in, extract David, kill him there on site because I mean who's going to have trouble overpowering a bunch of prayer meeting type of guys, right? I mean this should be super easy. So verse 20 the end it says this. When they, that's the assassins, when they saw the group of prophets prophesying and Samuel standing uh, as leader over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul and they also prophesied. This is cool. So these assassins, they, they burst in the door. They're like, we gotcha, you know? They, this place, and they look, and there's David, and there's prophet Samuel, and there's all these people prophesying. Now, now the word prophecy here, it means not like to tell the future. In Hebrew, the, the word prophecy, the, it means to speak under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 
And so that's what these guys are doing. Probably they're worshiping, probably they're praising God, they're praying. And this is what we would call in our terminology, we would call this an on-fire prayer meeting, right? This is, this is awesome. It's, it's a heavy place. So the assassins burst in the door. They're looking around. They see David. They see Samuel. They see the prophets. And all of a sudden, you know, they blink. And, and then they're just overwhelmed, you know? And all of a sudden they're like, they're kind of caught up in the moment, you know, and the Spirit of God comes upon them and this atmosphere of worship and praise, and they start prophesying too. I think this is really interesting because think about this. These men had not come to this place seeking the Lord. They weren't waiting upon the Lord. They weren't saying, God, we just want to be filled with your Spirit. Not at all. These were murderous men come to do evil. They weren't waiting upon the Lord. They didn't want to be filled with the Spirit. They weren't asking for it. But God sent his Spirit upon these men. Why? To disarm them. To disable them, basically. God did this to protect David. Remember, that's our, that's our title. Divine protection. That's where we see it right here. It, it also uh, sent a message. This sent a message to Saul. That this wasn't an accident. This was clearly God telling Saul, my spirit, my power is stronger than you. I don't care what you want to do. I'm in charge. I'm not going to let you harm David. I am going to protect him. You can throw spears at him. You can scare him, but I'm not going to let you lay a finger on him. Verse 21. And Saul was told, and when Saul was told, he sent other messengers and they also prophesied. Then Saul sent messengers again a third time, and they also prophesied. So each group of these assassins, right, they, they, they leave this place, and they've just got like tears streaming down their faces, and they're just giving everybody hugs, and they're, they're it's having a really great time, right? Uh, because they just experienced this awesome, you know, powerful time of prayer, this, this spiritual thing together. And they come back to Saul, and Saul's like, hey guys, good, you're back. So did you get him? Did you kill David? Did you get the job done? And they're like, oh, well, well, no, actually we, we didn't. Um, no. And he said, oh, well, well, uh, I mean, it must have been like a fierce battle, right? I mean, there must have been like swords flying and, you know, tables getting kicked over. I mean, David must have just barely escaped, man. He always does that. And they said, well, well, I mean, yeah, kind of. I mean, not, no, not really, not, not actually, no. Uh, well, well, then what was it? I mean, did, did they just have Saul? Was he like barricaded? Was he just heavily guarded? You couldn't get to him? Well, well, all right, Saul. So, so you see, they're kind of having this prayer meeting. And, uh, and well, it was really powerful. I mean, seriously, like, like we just couldn't help but just get caught up in it. I mean, it was, it was amazing stuff. And, uh, and Saul would say, what? Like, I, I can't believe this. You guys can't even kill a guy at a prayer meeting? I mean, I'll just find some other soldiers, some guys, you know, who are really jaded, some really, like, hardened men who aren't going to get caught up in all the emotionalism of this stuff. And so he sends these guys, you know. And the same thing happens, just tears streaming down their face. They're praying, they're worshiping, they're giving everybody a hug. They come back to Saul. You read in verse 22, it says, Then he also went to Ramah. That's Saul. Saul goes to Ramah and came to the great well that is at Seku, and he said, where are Samuel and David? And someone said, indeed, they're at Naoth and Ramah. So he went there to Naoth and Ramah, and then the Spirit of God was upon him also, and he went on and prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. That means that the Spirit of God came upon Saul before he even got to the prayer meeting, right? <laughs> right? So Saul says, you know, you guys, 
are terrible at being assassins. I guess if I want something right, done right, I got to do it myself. He goes down there himself. He, he's on his way there. He starts, you know, just prophesying and praising the Lord. He comes in. There's David. He looks at Samuel. He looks at the other guys, and he, he just joins in with them, right? He jumps in, right? Only with Saul, it, it even goes beyond just prophesying and praying. It, it goes another level. Check out verse 24. And he also stripped off his clothes and prophesied before Samuel in this manner and lay down naked all that day and all that night. Therefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? If anybody ever invites you to a 1 Samuel 19.24 prayer meeting, just be advised that you should not go to that prayer meeting. Uh, when it says here that uh, Saul was naked, I mean, that could mean that he was just kind of stripped down to his underwear. Could mean that he was naked. I don't know. But the point's the same. This is a very symbolic thing. God was stripping him. God was basically humiliating him. We've talked about that before. If you humble yourself before God, God will exalt you. But if you exalt yourself before God, he will humble you. And you don't want that, right? So God was protecting David. This was divine protection. Every time the, these guys came in to murder David, God stopped them by having the Holy Spirit just come upon them in such a way that it completely disarmed them. God was sending a message to Saul and to his assassins, and the message was, my spirit is stronger than your flesh. And he's, he's telling these men, he's telling Saul here, Saul, do you see how it feels to be surrendered to me? Do you see how it feels to be under the power of the Holy Spirit? Doesn't it feel much better, Saul? Isn't this better than the way you've been living? Angry and full of resentment and confrontation and just not liking people? Saul, it can be like this all the time. It, this is what you really need, Saul. You've been trying to make yourself happy and secure. But Saul, here's what you really need. You need to surrender your life to me and seek after me like you did in the old days, Saul, when you were young, when you first became king. That's the only real way that you're gonna find the happiness and the security that you so much desire in life. And the Holy Spirit prompted Saul to remove his kingly garments. I mean, take this image with you. Saul walks into this prayer meeting dressed in, as king, wearing kingly robes and attire and a crown. And then the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him and prompts him to take it all off, to lay down his robes, to lay down his crown, to take it all off. This is God's way of illustrating something to Saul. He's saying, Saul, I have stripped you of your position as king. You're not acting like a king. You're not acting according to my heart. And because of that, I'm stripping you of your position. You know, back in chapter 18, we read about how Jonathan, the son of Saul, a man after God's heart, when he realized that God had called David to be the next king of Israel and not him, Jonathan responded by removing his princely robes and handing them over to David. Do you see what a different picture that is? Jonathan is saying, God, if this is what you want, if this is what you do, you're doing, I'm on board with it. My life is surrendered to you, God. All my dreams, all my aspirations, I'm laying them down at your feet. Whatever you want for my life, God, I'm just a penny in your pocket. You can spend me whenever and however and wherever you please. That's the kind of heart that David had as well. And let me tell you, that is the kind of heart that we should all have as Christians. That is what it means, not only to call Jesus your Savior, but to call him the Lord of your life. It means that he's a supreme authority. Saul didn't have that heart, not at all. When Saul realized that God was raising up David to be king and replace him, 
rather than removing his kingly garments and surrendering to the will of God, David, or sorry, Saul dug his heels in and said, not over my dead body. I will do whatever it takes, even if it requires murder for the sake of my happiness and my security. Did you see how, did you see the irony in the situation? The irony is, is that Saul has neither of these things. He has neither happiness nor security. David, on the other hand, who is fully availed to God, we see an example of it in Psalm 59. Even in times of trouble, he has happiness and security even in the dark times, even in the hard times. And Saul, even though he lived in a palace and had an army, he was afraid. He was scared. He was insecure. He was depressed and he was unhappy. Let me tell you this. This is how I'm going to end. The safest place you can be is walking with God in the center of God's will, fully availed to him, surrendered, having your life surrendered to him as Lord over you. At this prayer meeting, you know, Saul was greatly affected by the power of the Spirit. He had a profound religious experience. You can imagine, though, if Saul was at a testimony meeting, he has an awesome story to tell, right? But here's the thing. Saul's life was not changed. Saul's life was not changed. Saul's heart was not changed because although Saul was affected by the power of God, Saul was still not surrendered to the will of God. You know, Saul's an example of how you can be affected by the power of God without being surrendered to the will of God. And although Saul now has this amazing story to tell of a powerful religious experience he had, there was no change in his life. There was no submission in his heart to God. I want to encourage you, don't be satisfied with seeking after religious experiences. Surrender yourself to, to the Lord so that he can change your life. The safest place to be is surrendered to the will of God. It's in that place that, of complete surrender where you will find true security, even in the midst of difficulty. Do you see how secure David is? Even during this time when God was allowing David to walk through some, some deep valleys and some difficult things, God was also playing an active role in protecting David. God allowed trials, God allowed difficulties in David's life to teach him invaluable lessons, to make him into a man of God, but there was also a limit to how far God would allow that to go. There were certain things that God would not allow to happen to David. God would intervene and protect him. You see, God was in control all the time. That's why David could be completely secure, and that's why you can be completely secure, even in the midst of danger and difficulty, because if your life is in God's hands, God loves you, and he, he's in control. David says this in Psalm 31, something that's comforted my heart in times uh, when I've been freaking out, right? Uh, he says this, I hear whispers, I hear terror on every side, but I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. There's no safer place to be than in his hand. Let me encourage you today. Give your life to him. Whether it's the first time today or the fifth time or the 500th time, give your life to him again today. Make him, declare him to be Lord over your life and walk in that. Put yourself fully in his hands and you will find security and joy that is bulletproof, that is eternal, that can't be found any other way. Amen? Let's stand and pray together. Lord, we thank you for this message from your word. We thank you for this message of security in, in your hand. Lord, we thank you so much for uh, the example we see in David and we can relate to it so much. 
Lord, would you help us as married people when we're in those kind of situations where something is creating a wedge in our marriage, Lord, would you help us to react like Michael reacted and cleave to our spouse? Lord, would you help us like David did in times of distress, Lord, to sing to you, to, to get our hearts thinking biblically, to, and, and to work ourselves, to strengthen ourselves into a place of confident joy. Lord, help us to seek after you, knowing, Lord, that in your hands we have complete security. And we thank you for that, and we go away with thankful hearts this morning because of the knowledge of that truth. In Jesus' name, amen.